Have you even asked the boy what he wants? You deliberately seduce him. You seduce his mind with your awful, tasteless, empty sauces, with your pitiful little squashed bits of garlic. That is called subtlety of flavor. Hello. Remember the entertainment episode where we said that your perception of entertainment would be broadened? Well, this one is about food, and rather than broadened, a better phrase this time might be blown apart. You can say that again. And while there it was mainly the concept changing over time, here it's simply the range of cultural differences across the globe's geography. And oh, if you have a queasy stomach, we apologize. If you are the adventurous kind, though, tuck in and bon appetit. Hi. So today we're going to be talking about food. Uh, and such, would you want to start us off? Right. For our ancient section, the first question in the quiz. Mm-hmm. We are talking about food and restaurants, so why not talk about what we know about menus? Before the quiz question, I can tell you that the first known menu that was written for chefs uh, was found in Egypt. The first menu written for diners was found in France. Okay. But the quiz question is about the first ever party, like a feast. Yeah. Okay. So the first ever feast that we know of was twelve thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and I want you to guess the main menu. Okay. Can you tell me where it was from? It's an archaeological dig, of course, to twelve thousand years ago. So it's a cave in Israel. Israel. Okay. Uh, was it some sort of a meat, like a whole lamb yeah. or a whole it, goat? It is meat, but it is sort of a sub- more surprising animal. Was it a pig? Okay. Just guess the class of species. So okay. far, you've listed mammals. It wasn't a mammal. Right. So well, seafood. No. Uh, was it a reptile? It was a reptile. So the first party that we know of was a feast that was probably thrown in honor of somebody's funeral. That part we are not very sure of, but it was a feast where seventy-one tortoises were served, and our best guess is that they were all roasted in their own shells and wow. served for somebody's funeral. It's like dying in a house fire. Uh, it's funny because uh, I recently read that a lot of the U.S. presidents were actually big fans of turtle. Uh, of turtle soup, I think. So George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, all of them were actually part of a club, like a turtle appreciation club. The Hoboken Turtle Club, yes. Exactly. Turtle meat was a very popular delicacy in the northeast of United States, right up, and, and the club went went on right up to until the point when they ate all the turtles to extinction. Oh, so so the turtles on the northeastern coast of the U.S. Uh, got extinct because of their meat. Yeah, they they are almost nowhere to be found now. Right. Anyway, so. Moving Moving on to my factoid, you mentioned a party in Israel, and well, um, they butchered a lot of turtles, it seems. But uh, I'm actually going to be talking about uh, something that has become almost a staple in our diet today. And for a long time, it wasn't accepted or looked at as an undesirable thing to have because of uh, a legend that comes from Israel. Can you guess what food this is, or is it food? a staple food item from Israel? Yeah. It's a religious uh, myth, let's say. Mm, no, I'm thinking of all sorts of breads, but I can't connect a religious myth. Right. So I'm talking about the forbidden fruit, which is uh, the apple. Turns out that apple wasn't the forbidden fruit. So we all know the story of Adam and Eve and how yeah. they were not supposed to have the apple, but they had it. But turns out that nowhere in the original text does it mention that it was an apple. And experts since have thought. That 
whether it was more likely to be a pomegranate or a fig, something which was popular in the region at the time. And the, the Apple connection comes in when the text was translated into Latin. So in the late 4th century, the Bible was translated into Latin. It was called the Vulgate or the Vulgate. And the Hebrew letter Ra was translated as Malum. And Malum means both evil and apple. So which is why the misconception that the fruit was in fact an apple but turns out it wasn't so and apple isn't the only one to get a bad rep tomatoes and potatoes both of which we consume a lot today uh, both of them coming from the south uh, south american continent they were not accepted into european society for a long time because of how similar they look to the nightshade variety and yeah. nightshade plants are uh, I, I i believe they're very poisonous uh, a few uh, a few of those species are really poisonous so which is why for a long time tomatoes and potatoes were feared in Germany, uh, people actually believed that potatoes would, could cause syphilis and leprosy and all sorts of weird diseases. Yeah, because they were ridden with uh, those diseases all the time. And of course, you need an excuse to blame somebody exactly. for your own syphilis. The apple thing uh, doesn't come as a surprise at all because they grow nowhere near Israel. They are not from the region. Although it's also contentious where the Garden of Eden itself was. Mm-hmm. It, there's no reason it had to be Israel because the text refers to it and it could have been a faraway land. And how far away would it have been if it indeed the fruit were an apple do you know where apples come from apples let's see uh, russia okay that's not very far it's uh, from kazakhstan in uh, that general region okay where today you find wild varieties of apples that are the ancestors of all the apples uh, around the world Mm-hmm. Interestingly, as we speak of staple foods and foods that came to us from far away and then became part of our traditional cuisine, first encounters with these sorts of food items have often been very funny. So chilies, for example, uh, also from South America, are now uh, part of uh, mainstream Asian cuisine, almost identified with uh, Asian uh, cuisine. Mm-hmm. But when they first came to Japan, they weren't even used for eating. They weren't even used as food. What do you think the Japanese did with them? I don't know, to them. <laughs> the next best thing they used to uh, put them inside their slippers to keep their feet warm okay that, that might have worked too right you can actually imagine it working yeah but speaking of tomatoes and chili uh, and we must talk about ketchup uh, you, did you know that originally ketchup didn't even contain tomatoes the original recipe oh yeah and to, to this day in many parts of the world including india it often has a lot of uh, pumpkin in it yeah but uh, it, it is actually chinese sauce and it was it originated as a fermented fish sauce and yeah. not only did it not have any tomatoes it had none of the pumpkins or any of the other additives that we see today it was only when it was transported to europe through the british that they started using uh, ingredients like oysters and mushrooms and uh, anchovies to get that umami flavor that they would get from the fermented fish and i believe even the word uh, ketchup comes from katsip i don't know if i'm pronouncing this properly but even the word sounds uh, the word the chinese word sounds very similar to the ketchup that we use today yeah yeah both the dish and its name from China via Southeast Asia and in the US of course around this time there's a lot of pseudoscience going around so uh, immediately a guy called John Cook started selling ketchup as a medicine for all sorts of ailments and even patented it as such right that's pretty cool Uh, so anyway we've traced the journey of ketchup and we saw that it came from Asia in fact there are a lot of dishes which have a certain geographical indicator attached to it which actually has nothing to do with that place so for example could you tell me where Hawaiian pizza comes from? If it's not Hawaii, I have no idea. Right, so it isn't Hawaii and it isn't Italy either. It actually comes from Ontario, 
Canada. <laughs> so this uh, owner of a pizzeria, owner of a restaurant over there, he decided that to spice things up to attract uh, some new business, uh, to do something innovative with his pizzas. His name was Sam Panopoulos. He himself had come from Greece to Canada and he just decided to put pineapple on pizza. And this was in 1962. And for some reason, he named it Hawaiian pizza and it just caught on. And till today, people are debating on whether it's a good topping or not. So and Greek immigrant to Canada used an American name for an Italian dish. Yeah. <laughs> that isn't the only dish, you know. So, French fries is probably the most well-known example. Though we call them French fries, there's a huge debate between France and Belgium uh, over who actually started uh, preparing this dish. And I think you side with the Belgians on that one? Yes. Right. And then, there's another thing called the Jerusalem artichoke, which is not even an artichoke to begin with. It's a, a type of sunflower. And Italian-Americans used to call it uh, the girasol. And girasol means sunflower. And Americans thought it to be Jerusalem, so which is why it became the Jerusalem artichoke because the artichoke and the sunflower are related, the plants. So Jerusalem artichoke is another example which has nothing to do with Jerusalem or to do with artichoke either. Girasol actually is the name of the sunflower which literally means turns to the sun. Right. And another famous example along those lines is, of course, the Danish pastry, mm-hmm. which, of course, because the Scandinavians are far too polite, it's not that contentious. They openly acknowledge that Danish pastry is actually Austrian, which was brought over by immigrant uh, bakers from that country. Right. From Austria. Yeah. Right. So that brings us to the end of the ancient section. Moving on to the current, I have something for you. Can you guess what the world's uh, cheapest Michelin starred meal is and how much it costs? Is it... Um, uh, some sort of uh, street food in Japan. Street food bit, yes. Japan, no. No? Nope. But you've got the general geography right. So it's actually a street food stall in uh, Singapore. Ah. And the meal is the simple soya sauce chicken rice, which is a very popular dish in Singapore. So the stall itself is called Liao Fan Hong Kong. And the chef is Chan Hon Meng. And it was awarded a Michelin star in uh, 2016, I believe. And you can get this meal for just $2.20. That's how cheap it is. Brilliant. I just went with Japan because that I, I, I knew a factoid, which is that it's the greatest density of Michelin star restaurants anywhere in the world. So I thought the cheapest has got to be there. Right. Anyway, dude, uh, a little bit of history about the Michelin stars uh, since the whole episode is about restaurants and food. Mm-hmm. So Michelin, of course, as you know, is uh, that tire company, right. that French, uh, French firm. And the reason that they decided to print a guide uh, to popular restaurants is quite interesting. It was actually a marketing trick. Okay. Uh, this is very early in the history of the car, in the development of the car. Not many people had them. Not many people knew what to do with them. <laughs> so to get people to use their cars more often and to use, or more importantly, wear out their tires sooner, mm-hmm. they decided they'll publish a handbook that'll rate restaurants and give you a very good reason to drive that extra mile and wear off your tires so that the five Michelin star restaurant is then worth the trial. Right. That's pretty interesting. That's a bit like you know, using content based marketing strategies a little bit yeah Yeah. and so speaking of how rating of restaurants and how restaurants set uh, themselves uh, apart now the competition in the industry is heating up quite a bit to the extent that now restaurants have to do frankly very bizarre things to set themselves apart Mm -hmm. a very recent very interesting trend that i've read about is uh, something called a zero tolerance coffee Mm -hmm. have you heard of these no but i'm guessing it's something where the coffee may taste unpleasant but you're forced to consume it you know in that specific way 
forced is the right word so <laughs> it's not supposed to taste bad in fact the uh, idea of forcing you to do, have it their way is that it's supposed to be very premium very very well selected expensive coffee mm. and so there are cafes propping up all over rich countries where they refuse to serve you either sugar or milk so all you can order there is a variety of coffees from Ghana or Costa Rica or Ethiopia or Colombia and they will serve it to you what you cannot ask them for they don't even stock it there's no sugar cubes no brown sugar no variety of milk oh. it's just coffee and that's their policy right so I, I know I wouldn't set foot in that cafe but uh, because I'm not a great fan of coffee but uh, this trend that you talk about that of experiential eating or rather eating uh, a particular dish the way it was originally intended intended to is catching on in India too I know of this place in Kolhapur in Maharashtra where they serve mutton thali which is essentially a spicy curry made from mutton yeah goat meat and they serve along with it a bhakri which is like a, a, a slightly larger coarse bread made from millet and the restaurant has a lot of rules as to how you're supposed to eat it so for example uh, you, you are pretty much forced to sort of crumble the bhakri and uh, put it into the gravy and you have to wait for it to soak up all the spices and all the uh, the, the taste from the gravy and only then can you eat it there's also weird rules like uh, you can't use a knife to cut the onion that you're served. You have to break it with your fist. You have to bang it against the floor. So there's all sorts of different traditions and that's how they have been doing it in Kolhapur apparently. So uh, it's a pretty interesting trend and uh, so this thing I might uh, give it a try unlike the coffee bit. Well I wouldn't have thought that this trend has already reached India but as long as they don't actually have a waiter crumbling your bread for you <laughs> and spoon feeding you I'm down with that trend. Yeah. But the reason it surprises me is that they were actually chefs in parts of Europe mm-hmm. who will refuse, point blank refuse to even serve you a well-done steak. I mean, it's an expensive restaurant. You're paying 25 euros for your steak and you, just like in America, you plan to order a well-done one and they'll just come out of the kitchen and tell you no to your face and go back in, cursing their luck that another Philistine from India has walked <laughs> into their restaurant. But then again, on the other side of that whole trend are also some pubs in the Netherlands, which are did like there's a pub uh, in the south of the Netherlands in a small town called Maastricht which is famed for its thousand beers Okay. but the twist being that you can't actually choose your own beer mm-hmm. so the restaurant uh, prides itself the pub prides itself on uh, its variety and they will ask you to name a beer more commonly available in the country elsewhere in the country that you do like mm-hmm. and then the owner uh, will uh, recommend f- from four or five uh, different op- options that you have never heard of which are something like the taste that you do like but they are they are rarer and they are more exquisite Mm -hmm. yeah that too i can imagine myself taking the trip too but yeah so speaking of uh, unique experiences while eating there is this uh, ukrainian cafe which has started doing something which is completely bizarre when it comes to how an establishment is supposed to treat its patrons so this is the ukrainian city of lviv it's lviv i'm not sure it's uh, a big city yeah right so this cafe what they do in this cafe is they tie the patrons to a chair and someone comes and whips you and slaps you and beats you and it's supposed to be a unique experience to be had in that cafe. Right. I think now we have crossed the line into right. the truly bizarre. But can you guess uh, why they do it? As in what the connection is or why uh, in this city? Marky the Saad was a visitor in this city and, uh, and no. demanded this uh, for but, the first time? But you're close enough. So let me give you another hint. The cafe is called the Massage Cafe. 
Right. So the, the name Masosh actually comes from Leopold von Sacher Masosh, from whom we get the word uh, Masochism or Masochistic. Okay, so the other part of say the Masochism. Right. So this guy actually wrote a lot of literature which had uh, scenes describing sexual encounters where they derived pleasure from slapping and whipping their sexual partners. And in order to spice things up and sort of have a connect to the city's history, this cafe actually started giving the patrons an experience of Masochism. And uh, it's actually pretty interesting. They find that the female patrons are actually much, much braver than the men. And the men are quite squeamish and they often uh, scream and shout when they're with. Right. I think I prefer my restaurants to spice things up only literally. <laughs> Another restaurant uh, among these trends is one in Berlin, which I think was the first in the world to come up with this. And though now, I think also in London and New York, you have comparable places. This restaurant in Berlin is completely dark. There are no lights. And also the waiters uh, serving there are all blind. And the uh, idea, of course, being a departure from this whole Michelin star idea of uh, presentation and how food should also look mm-hmm. as good as it tastes. And this restaurant has decided to just focus purely on the flavors and take your eyesight completely out of the picture. And they say this way you are more concentrated on your palate. Right. And I'm pretty sure that they'll be slipping in dishes which are thought to be taboo or inedible. And uh, the customers can come out feeling, oh wow, that is actually quite a nice experience. Right. Or rotten food which has been lying in the fridge a bit too long. It can go either way. Anyway, so coming back to more <laughs> conventional trends of eating and food. So shows like MasterChef often refer to their participants as home chefs or home cooks. And through a few apps now, you, that is actually how uh, you can actually be a chef cooking from your home. So there's this platform called AuthenticCook.com where you can just put up a listing of the kind of cuisine that you specialize in at your home. And uh, people who are interested in trying out the cuisine can visit you, can contact you, of course, and visit you and try out the food that they want to. So one example is Bori food. So um, I don't know if you know this, but Boris, they usually have a huge plate uh, with all the different dishes and all of them eat from the same plate. Like the Dastar Khan tradition. Right. And this is one type of food which you don't get very often in restaurants in India. So Bori food would be would be ideal for uh, this platform. And I believe there are listings of Bori food, Punjabi food, Tamil food. Another example could be food from northeastern India. So again, uh, it's a great way to experience dishes from regions that you might not have eaten. And of course, at the end of the meal, you can leave a review, tell others about your experience. And if people are actually liking the food that you're putting out, this could be a great career option. If The review part reminds me of this other new trend in restaurants, which is uh, in a way quite the diametrical opposite of this dark restaurant in Berlin, mm-hmm. which is Instagram restaurants. So because uh, Instagram is a big thing now and people like to post pictures of their food much more than actually uh, enjoy eating it, Instagram is having a big influence in restaurant design and food presentation. So there are consultants going around large cities like Los Angeles and New York who give advice to restaurants on how to paint a particular wall and what to have on walls behind the diner to make it an Instagram worthy picture and also restaurants have started doing their monograms on every single item of cutlery so that it features in their Instagram photos like a product placement or brand extension and so on. So the focus is moving all the more back to presentation and looks. Right and there's also I mean uh, we've seen this trope being used often in movies where a restaurant is uh, involved. Uh, This this really strict food critic walks into the restaurant and this new chef somehow impresses uh, the food critic and gets a good review in the newspaper. So often now for openings of restaurants they invite uh, Instagram influencers and 
and they are the ones who are talking about it on Instagram. So the focus has shifted from food reviewers and newspapers to Instagram celebrities. Of course they do. So you have when you visit a highly recommended restaurant, you are guaranteed a beautiful setting and a, a very beautiful plates and very good looking food. Exactly. Nobody can promise you what it's going to taste like. Anyway, one food trend that we have to talk about in terms of future of food mm-hmm. is something called entomophagy which is which is entomo stands for insects and phagy means eating so it is the eating of insects and because of climate change and uh, other environmental problems such as we, we are running out of water and land to grow all the food food grains and uh, for, for cultivating meat and uh, everything the united nations has for a while been advocating the switch to insects for meeting our protein needs okay and horrible as they sound insects actually are part of traditional foods in uh, many parts of Asia, Africa and South America including many parts of India and they are a very good protein source the, uh, the reason they are a very promising food is that they are a good source of protein and they have such short life cycles so you can grow a very large colony in a very short good amount of, of protein in a very short uh, period of time in fact the future is already here dishes that include insects are already mainstreams in restaurants cookbooks and supermarkets in the Netherlands right that is uh, so essentially staring at a future where all of us are eating insects to a plate no matter how disgusting well, yeah, but it's not that disgusting. I mean, if you think about it, you must have heard of really horrible sounding rotten food like surströmming uh, in Sweden, which is basically rot- herring rotten beyond the point of consumption right. and other Nordic delicacies like that. Right, yeah, I mean, Europe uh, sure has its fair share of gross food. But if you want to talk about really disgusting stuff, uh, you have to come closer to home near China. Oh, you mean things like century eggs? They are not that bad. Well, century eggs, you, you got the eggs right but um, i'm not talking about century eggs i'm talking about something called uh, the virgin boy egg which is and i promise you will blow your mind away so if you're really interested uh, maybe have a quick google search and look it up later god i just looked it up in wikipedia and it's it's even more horrible than it's uh, than the name sounds i know right but i still don't want uh, us to leave on uh, the note blaming everything on the chinese mm-hmm. not very far from disgusting foods are cruel foods right. and our friends the french again back to Europe, mm-hmm. top the rankings. You mean uh, foie gras, right? Oh, you innocent creature, no. <laughs> I mean something called the ortholon. So this is, uh, wait for it, mm-hmm. this is a little bird, a tiny songbird, beautiful songs about the size of a sparrow. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you take the live bird, you kill it by drowning it in a glass of your own brandy. Oh. You hold it by its feet mm-hmm. and then you chuck the whole thing in your mouth, swallow it whole and pull out the legs and the rib. Uh, and the uh, spine out of your mouth. That does sound more, much, much crueler than foie gras. Well, of course, you're at least feeding the bird quite a lot to uh, fatten it up. Exactly. So it at least has a good time before you kill it. Yeah, this is uh, especially grim. And on that uh, that grim note, we have come to the end of the current section. Moving on to the spotlight section. Sir? All right. So we spoke of zero tolerance coffee. And what better way to serve your extremely arrogant, snobbish coffee? Mm-hmm than in 100% recyclable cups. And we aren't talking uh, paper cups. Mm-hmm. I give you cups that are grown on trees. Cups grown on trees. Yeah, these are actually uh, a kind of a gourd which uh, grows on a tree. You put it, once the small fruit appears, you put sort of a mold on top of
top of it. Uh, so the gourd grows in the shape of a cup. Yeah. You dry out the gourd, you hollow it out, and you've got a ready-made cup. A little bit like dronas in India. Right. So you mentioned uh, cups that grow on trees, and I my mind immediately went to uh, cups that can grow trees. So there is a whole range of paper products. These are really niche paper products, which actually have seeds embedded in them. So you can have uh, pencils and paper and envelope. And once you're done writing or once you're done using these, you can just plant them in a little bit of soil. And the seeds actually take root and you can have a small plant from the paper that you used yesterday. Uh, anyway, so my factoid is uh, about food delivery apps. So we all know that uh, over the past decade or so, food delivery apps have sprouted everywhere. Yeah. And in India too. And you have crazy discounts and crazy offers. So of course, people end up ordering uh, from outside much more than, than they used to. And what has happened is because of this craze, uh, because of this uh, easy availability of food, uh, we end up eating a lot of lot more junk food than we used to. Uh, so now, of course, uh, we have researchers have, have have been trying for a long time to get people to eat healthier, especially in countries where there is, there is a risk of obesity or diabetes or heart disease. And there is some value in looking at what strategies have worked and what haven't. So, for example, uh, it is found that indications of how many calories or how or, or the nutrient information for each dish they don't always work. So uh, often you see on a menu uh, special dishes which are low fat or low calories. Yeah. So these are found to not really encourage the, the consumer to buy them. What does work, however, is a personal suggestion. For example, when you tell the person who's taking your order uh, what you want and the person maybe suggests a, either a healthy alternative or asks you to downsize a portion uh, based on the number of people sitting at your table, that is actually found to help uh, cutting down orders and making healthier choices much more than calorie information. And uh, what could be a useful direction to look at is somehow adapting these features onto food delivery services. So for example, having a chatbot integrated into the user interface of the app, which asks you how many people you're ordering for and what kind of food do you want, and then makes a slightly nudges you towards the healthier option. So this could be an interesting direction to take the whole food delivery app phase. Right. Second spotlight on my end is a young star chef in Brazil mm-hmm. who, like most chefs, wanted to try out some ingredients for inspiration. But what he, he did not look beyond his own culture's borders, as is usually the case in, say, Europe and United States. He decided to actually go the other way and go deep into the Amazonian forest with, where there are tribes that are, uh, live outside con- contact with civilization and and looked into what ingredients they use in their food. And the, of course, the Brazilian rainforest is teeming with all sorts of uh, the bounty of nature and uh, unexplored species. Mm-hmm. And he brought new beans and new flowers and seeds and uh, what have you from deep in the forest and brought them to his table and uh, innovated new dishes and converted into both cuisine for restaurants in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro or wherever and charged uh, the big buck for them. So the reason we mentioned this here is that India likewise has uh, lots of cultures and communities living in relative isolation and we have uh, similarly both a rich old tradition of cuisines but also mm-hmm. lots of in- indigenous tribes which may have all kinds of ingredients in their food that we haven't tapped yet and we are ripe with potential for tapping them. Yeah that does sound very ex- exciting and to the thing that you mentioned about uh, walking into forests to pick out different flavors uh, what comes to mind is foraging. Now when you think of foraging you go back to hunter-gatherer tribes and imagine them picking out these weird berries and roots and nuts and yeah. somehow cobbling together uh, a barely passable meal. But in fact foraging if done properly can actually give you a complete fine dining experience. There is a chef in Wales, Chef uh, Matt Powell. So what he does is he walks into forests much like this Brazilian chef and he actually picks out really really specific berries and roots and leaves and sometimes it can go down to the 
details like a dewdrop and he makes the most amazing stunning things from these ingredients and he can actually lay out an entire five course meal uh, he lives also very close to the forest so he cooks them uh, very close to where he sources the ingredients from and just stunning truly unbelievable the kind of things that are possible just using these basic ingredients and when it comes to india i mean i'm completely with you on that india has just fruits i can think of so many in fact uh, did you know that one of the names that india was referred to in uh, ancient indian texts like the puran actually came from one of the fruits uh, that that grew in india can you guess the fruit or can you guess the name i can't uh, no sorry right so the name is jambu dweep which translates to so dweep means island and jambu so there's two guesses so one is the jamun uh, is consumed all all over india i guess but it's called the malabar blackberry and another theory is that uh, jambu refers to jam which is uh, the rose apple which is a really uh, peculiar tasting fruit uh, sort of triangular in shape so i mean i think uh, we we owe it to our forefathers to discover these uh, lost flavors right i i do agree about the uh, scope for both for foraging or for looking into uh, indigenous food and recipes mm-hmm. with the dweep stuff i i have to i mean for the record i think uh, it either means an island or a continent so the name might have been referring to either the entire subcontinent or uh, a larger yeah uh, it was entity. it was more of uh, this story happened in jambudweep or the land where there was a pilgrimage right so that then brings us to the end of this episode right join us again next week for another interesting profession and the history present and future of it thank you Music on guitar by Tanay, editing by both of us in turns, and film quotes used with presumptions under the fair use doctrine. And don't forget to check out the show notes for the references we mentioned. Goodbye.